0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So as many of you might be aware, there was a big uh, or a number of big cases that came down from the Supreme Court last week. Uh, a lot of things touching on all kinds of different issues like affirmative action, uh, religious liberty, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And so I wanted to go ahead. I touched a little bit on Uh, the affirmative action case when it first came out but i wanted to go ahead and get into these cases a little deeper and joining me to do that today is author and host over on blaze tv steve Deese. thanks for coming on man
1: you're welcome brother thanks for having me always good to talk to you you bet yeah
0: absolutely you've been kind enough to have me on many times and i was very happy to finally get you on here as well so i'm sure you've been following these cases we've got a lot to talk about here uh, but let's, I guess, let's just start with what many people will probably think is the most important case, of course, which is affirmative action. Of course, we've had a regime of this for many decades. This case was specifically targeted on the idea of adjusting college admissions due to race. Harvard and I believe the University of North Carolina were both kind of named in this for uh, Asian Americans not receiving uh, kind of the same consideration being held back so that other minorities could be elevated uh, due to different test scores. And this has now been struck down. What's kind of your initial reaction to uh, the, the fact that this case, this is something that has been so influential in the way that America's top institutions have been shaped has now been overturned?
1: The uh, the first thing, I, I think you have to look at three big ideas here. All right? I think number one anytime g- government grants anything to anybody on the basis of race, that is the very definition of systemic racism. And, and so we, uh, you know, when I was a kid, when this was a, a, a real culture war flashpoint issue, the term revert reverse race or reverse, uh, racism was kind of coined to me. There's just racism. I mean, I, it, it, you know, Rush Limbaugh used to say that, um, uh, uh, this isn't civil rights; it's get evenism, and that's basically what we're talking about. I mean, my my ancestors came here at the turn of the twentieth century with uh, mass European immigration from Italy and Sicily. Um, they they didn't come here for sixty years after the civil war. They were poor, came here with nothing. Nothing they owned, nothing. They lived in the get the eth- when they were ethnic ghettos at the time, and so the idea that I am somehow uh, beholden to some advantage. I'm not sure when I received that advantage. When my, uh, when my mom was pregnant with me at 14, maybe, when she had me at 15, was that when I got my white privilege? When we were on ADC and food stamps, is that when I got my white privilege? When, we, when I went to 11 different uh, schools, K through 12, is that maybe when I had my white privilege? Uh, the idea that um, because of some sins that were committed by people who uh, have the same uh, melanin level uh, as I do, uh, you know, 70 years before my ancestors arrived on this continent. And so therefore, um, I, I people that look like me now are to be granted some level of disadvantage systemically is the very definition of racism. But that kind of leads to my second point. And, 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 and I think it, it's why when, when I see you point out a lot, that no matter how many times you point out their hypocrisy, it won't, they won't be moved by it. It, it's about. I think it's because of what I'm going to address here in, in point two, and that is that ultimately we're not debating anymore what is constitutional and unconstitutional. We are now debating what is anti-constitutional, meaning that these aren't things that reasonable people can disagree. What are the limits of the general welfare clause? But we're ta- and, and we debated those things for many, many years, um, going back to the Great Society. But starting really, I think most famously with Roe, where the Supreme Court created a right to privacy that did not exist. Those words are nowhere in the constitution. And it's on purpose because the founders did not believe that ethics were privatized. Uh, They believed in the laws of nature and nature's God, and that the constitution was only meant for a more religious people. So the idea of privatized ethics, uh, thus you have a right to privacy. You can't have a right to privacy without privatized ethics, ultimately because who. Hey, I'm a drug dealer, but it's it's in my private time. But I'm you know I'm 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 making meth, but it's in my private time. Who are you to judge? There has to be some form of ethic that we determine whether or not what you're doing with your with your privacy is, is meritorious or not. Uh, and starting with Roe, where this made up right was essentially injected into the constitutional bloodstream, we have been having now constitutional and anti-constitutional arguments for 50 years. That what we're debating now are things that go against the intended schema of the Constitution. They are, they are deconstructive agents purposefully, not accidentally, not well-intentioned, but they went too far. We are, we, that there's one side of the argument here is on purpose atten- intending to deconstruct and rewrite the uh, the social compact via anti-constitutional language. And affirmative action would be an example of that. Um, and, and, and that brings me back, and that brings me to the third point that it seems as if, and maybe this is kind of fitting, when I was a kid, uh, Reagan was credited with ending the Cold War. That he took um, a Soviet Union, and and that was that coming out of the 60s and 70s. There was a lot of concern and paranoia. Uh, they were going to dominate. That we were a country in decline, and that he called that bluff, and 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 brought them to the brink of extinction, which inevitably happened in the in the couple of uh, con- convening years after he left the White House. And so that was kind of the fulfillment. That was kind of the fulfillment of the greatest generation era uh, of, of, of taking on totalitarian ideologies threatening the West uh, from Nazism to Japanese imperialism uh, and then to Marxism. In some respects, Trump is the is the is the successor to that. Um, in that, he has now vanquished really through his judicial appointments the the two hottest. Flag- Flash, um, uh, you know, uh, f- hot flash, uh, culture war issues of his of the boomer era, which were which was uh, dealing how to deal with systemic racism with things like affirmative action and Roe and abortion. Those are if you grew up in the 80s, those were the the issues that were the most divisive culture war, culture war issues of that era, well into the 90s. And his just as Reagan finished off whatever was left of the Soviet industrial complex. Trump and his judicial, Trump via his judicial appointments, has smashed the the largest two shibboleths of the left's culture war in uh, in the boomer era, and and so those are kind of the three big picture thoughts I would have of what of that ruling and what it means.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It feels very difficult because, of course, this is a this is a for many conservatives a, a very difficult thing to acknowledge. But the right has been very scared to address the Civil Rights Act or affirmative action when it becomes pointed at, I think, certain groups, very particularly, you know, white people. Like you said, when that when that bias now comes towards whites, when that racism is aimed at whites instead of other groups, all of a sudden they get very skittish about pointing that out. And so I guess kind of, you know, they felt a little better about the fact that it was also Asian-Americans, of course, who were heavily biased against in this ruling. But this has got kind of a a, a big downward uh, uh, consequences, right? There, there's the cascading possibilities for this because, of course, these rulings, you know, just as affirmative action did not only apply to colleges. Uh, these rulings could easily uh, fall on to businesses, other organizations that now have to take all into account or basically that were required by law to take into account race on all of these different issues, mm-hmm. all of a sudden there, there's a possibility uh, that that just kind of goes away. Now these, uh, or or can be challenged, I should say. Now these uh, organizations have all kind of spoken up. We've already seen, especially ones like Harvard, basically say, we're not really gonna pay attention to this ruling, right? Because in the ruling, uh, it says that you're still allowed to think about or kind of consider Whether or not someone's race created additional difficulty for them, whether they overcame different aspects of that. And so Harvard has already basically said, well, we're just going to go to, uh, we're going to skip the test scores. We're going to go directly to essays. And then we can just kind of uh, take that into account still. Now the, the ruling itself did actually say that you can't circumvent this with just a with just an essay test instead. But right, right. It, but but Harvard came out and directly said actually we are just planning to do that. So we have the ruling now, which is great, but do you think it will actually be enforced? Do you think that these organizations will actually change their behavior? I think some of that is bravado,
1: frankly. You know, we're mm. we're seeing this thing in pop culture right now where um Leftist uh, cast members of productions are so anxious to get the uh, social social media virtue signal attaboys and ratios that they are like way overselling the amount of woke content in their production in order to, you know, get the the clickbait ratio they want. And then the rest of America is like, oh, okay, so you're insulting me. I guess I don't need to see that. And then like, and then they bomb at the box office or they bomb on a streaming platform. And it turns out if you watch it like six months or a year later, you're like, yeah, I mean, there was, you know, kind of your typical liberal bromides in there, but that certainly wasn't the uh, the woke him that I was warned about. They are just, they just way oversold it for social, for social media uh, style points and street cred. And I think that's some of what you're talking about with Harvard, but I also think some of it, and maybe even a lot of it are on is irrelevant because Skynet is adapting, right? and so. Uh, there was a there was a monumental affirmative action case just a few years ago involving the University of Michigan too with a very similar ruling. And, and what did we see in response to that? 30, 40 years ago, if we had something like COVID, the left would have tried to the, the, would have tried to use government to impose, not to declare, but to impose, enforce the kind of vaccine mandate that Joe Biden tried to get private corporations to do. Because 30-40 years ago, Private corporations were largely friends, or at least co-belligerents, of people like you and I. They understood that um, for us to to fully reward our shareholders and to reach our full profit motive potential, government is in the way of that. So we'll even donate to your silly culture war causes that maybe we don't even agree with. Like Target was once one of the largest donors uh, to marriage amendments fights in the 1990s. Mm. And so they, they recognized that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Even if they didn't necessarily weren't simpatico with us on these cultural issues, they understood that we were fighting the same enemy. What's happened now is, it, is, it, is there's been a massive political realignment in America. It just hasn't happened within the electorate and the classes. And the donor classes now that run these corporations are like, you know, we don't have to fight big government anymore. We can just join with it and get what we want out of it and become too big to fail. And TARP was kind of the first signal that this transition from the Lee Iacocca CEO of our childhood to the, I'm really concerned about my diversity program. So that's where Disney will literally tank its stock. Its stock is down 50% in value or since 2004, it's it's trading at 2004 market value right now or 2014 market value right now. And yet shows no signs in doing more and more content that people don't want because they're believers now. They're, they're, they're true believers. They're, they're doing this as a, they're on a mission from God. It's just a different one. Okay. And, and this transition has happened where now what we used to call affirmative action is now called ESG and DEI. And so, yes, Donald Trump did with his judicial appointments, similar to, again, the, the same analogy. Reagan defeated what was left of the Soviet Union, but Skynet adapted. And instead, it, it just it just downloaded much of its matrix into our own academia and our own pop culture. And we're, we're living through this in what we're seeing right now. Similarly, you are watching the end of the affirmative action era, one of the hot button uh, flashpoints of the culture war of the boomer era. You're watching it end from a public institutional standpoint. But, 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 but again, the, the Skynet's adapted. It's just rebooted. Version 2.0 is called DEI ESG. All right. And you've seen a handful of Republican governors like DeSantis and a few others now trying to go after it. And in in, I think that's where you live is in Florida, trying mm-hmm. to go after this within their own states to stop it from capturing the institutions on a local and statewide level. And so it, one front has ended, but this enemy is systemic and it's just repackaging itself now. And now it's called ESG and DEI.
0: Do you think that this is this is something that kind of the the right has to learn, that conservatives have to learn that formal victories are necessary but not sufficient, right? You know, like you said, we we think we've got this election, we think we've got the Supreme Court ruling, we think we've got this new piece of legislation, and then even though there's been this formal victory, companies, universities, uh, you know, they just continue the mission on. There, there's like you made a good point there about DI and and ESG. These are now industries unto themselves, right? These are Correct. bureaucracies yeah. built into this stuff. There's an entire managerial apparatus of you know people who are whose livelihood is built on the continuation of this regime. Correct. And and so the the Supreme Court ruling can't be applied because if they did, it could collapse an entire sector of the economy, an entire. Part of kind of their power manufacturing apparatus. And so, but but I guess the good news is that there is now the opportunity for lawfare, right? Like you yep. said, in, in California, you know, uh, race-based admissions have been illegal forever, but it still goes on because the universities just don't care. The conservatives, they're not going to see these, uh, these things change right away. They're not going to see these institutions change right away. But what they do now have is the opportunity for sustained ability to apply legal pressure to bring these things down.
1: I think that is, that is very well said. I think it is in, it's important to note that, the, you know, what is the backdrop of the conversation here? I mean, what, what's the, what is the cultural context of what we are of what we are alluding to? Uh, you know, there's a great line in Mel Gibson's uh, *The Patriot*: "Why would I trade one tyrant, two thousand miles away, from two thousand tyrants for two thousand tyrants one mile away?" And and what has happened is, the the singular figures of the racialist shakedown era, Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, um, that if you could get around them or. You know, Every time Jesse Jackson had a scandal and fathered another kid uh, via adultery or wedlock, and he had to go into hiding for six months to a year, or every time Al Sharpton lied, which was regularly, right. meaning that the, the flaws of that agenda were largely rested on the precarious stat- social status of the people carrying that agenda, like Jackson and Sharpton. So whenever they were, mar- if you could marginalize them, you could marginalize their agenda. They weren't as good at shaking down corporations and things of that nature over fake racism. What we have now, though, is the process has been democratized. That's what you just alluded to. This is an entire cottage industry, it's an economy of scale now. I mean, even here in Iowa, where I live, when we had the Floyd, uh, the the, the summer of George Floyd funerals, a venerable company owned by a Christian uh, family going back many, many years, Hy-Vee grocery stores. They, were, they had massive, it was almost like the Passover, except instead of lamb's blood, they put massive BLM signs over their main awning, almost as if to say, please pass over us, we have made the necessary genuflection, do not punish us, okay? But, let, but leave our store front be. And so this, this thing is, this is a tumor now that is metastasized in many respects. And, and that is evidence of, I think, what is the most important cultural context that is often not discussed on the right It has to be discussed actually in all things. The social compact is broken. I think this is the most important thing to discuss beyond just the obvious theological nature of what we are dealing with. And that is the main cause of what we become as a people and the the rival religion that has sprouted up from the spirit of the age to replace the old Judeo-Christian one in a but in a, in a natural in a, in a non-supernatural sense the most important thing to remember when you look at anything happening in the country on any contested issue is you have to remember the social compact is broken what do I mean by that the constitution is the quantification of the social compact it begins with the words we the people so what existed first the constitution or the people did the constitution form the union or did the people form the union the people formed the union. This is our social compact. What it means in a declaration when we talk about law, the government by the consent of the governed, the Constitution will now quantify that. There will be bills of Bill of Rights granted to, in, to citizens um, to, that will, that will complement the inalienable rights that each of us have just by virtue of being born and made in the image of God. And then there are the enumerated powers that government, these are the, only the things that government can do and it can do, do no more. And for government to come up with more powers that that are not yet enumerated, there's an extraordinary appeal process constitutionally in order for those provisions to be uh, to be codified uh, years later. That's all broken now. We live in a period of time now where, um, and and this has been going on since Roe as well. The left openly does things it knows and or suspects are illegal. And just dares you to go find a federal judge somewhere that will strike it down, or a legislature somewhere that'll render it via nullification null and void. That's not. That's not a political disagreement. Your social compact is broken. You're. You're not. And we're not even. That's not. That's like we're not even neighbors anymore. We're just living next to each other coincidentally under the same landmass. And the reason why that is important is, and and I will confess that. Until the last few years, I held off on it fully embracing this, even though I suspected it for many years. Why? Because I've read a history book and a Bible, Iran. and so I know what it means. It, we cannot cavalierly say things like this. To say things like this for a rhetorical flourish is irresponsible, because if it's true then then we're in a we're in a very dire historical moment and and, and and it's only because i've come to the conclusion after the last few years that we are that i didn't want to, i didn't want i wanted to err on the side of being late to that realization than too early because of what it would mean but now that it's the evidence is clear after the last few years that the social compact is broken meaning we are we are living with people who don't just merely politically disagree with us they have no interest in tolerating us or our viewpoints and they're they're trying to undermine
0: them. They're trying to end them. I yeah, think of I, your state again, Florida. Go ahead. Oh no, I, I was just going to say I think that that is ultimately the danger of uh, thinking that contract law can kind of hold the country together. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. I think that Christians and and this is a Christian country, you know, at, at its very founding. It, it, they but in many ways they allowed. The uh, the faith in God and 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 kind of the cohesion of a culture and a people to be replaced with the idea that a document itself could kind of supplant it, and so America Correct. was no longer a people; it was no longer a shared culture. Instead, it was now a document, Correct. and and that document was what was to be uh, exalted. But once that document lost the the animating force of the culture and the religion and the people behind it. Correct. Then, then it simply became something that people could dicker about until yes. one side got its way and its power. And this is why we've seen two entirely different types of of culture, two entirely different sets of values emerge simultaneously inside and under this document. Because the document, just because, becomes something to get redefined and moved out of the way for the new religion or the new culture, the new value set to subsume the old.
1: Amen. You just eloquently itemized what what, what the, a broken social compact means. I mean, you don't quote laws at men with guns. You don't you don't stand in front of Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers and scream out "Shall not murder." They don't care. It's an irrelevant process. I, I think of your state again, of Florida. Um, we learned in this last midterm election that 40% of your state there is there is no performance level of normalcy, success. Um, uh, security that a Republican could perform that would get them to vote for them. That was was quantified in this last election. I mean, your governor basically did a bunch of stuff people like me have only been blogging and doing talk shows about for 30 years. He did a lot of those things. And Mm -hmm. your state benefited greatly from it. And still 40% of your state thought, I'll take the Marxism. That means that they are, that that 40% of, of... of, of Floridians, same thing happened in my home state of Iowa. We had a very similar governor in Kim Reynolds. She's just not doesn't have quite the the, the personality and does it quietly. And Iowa was not the battlefield that Florida is. But she also moved our state the furthest right it's ever been. She got about 60 percent of the vote too, and that means about 40 percent outside of like a Mississippi, a Alabama, where being red state is ingrained in the water table, in in places that are contested. Uh, the the baseline is 40% of the people who show up to vote are affirmatively for Marxism. Affirmatively for it. Or they are so affirmatively for the immorality that the Marxists will permit, that they will vote for them in order to get the immorality they want, even if it undoes everything else about society that they also want. That's a very dangerous place to be when 40% of the electorate in the third largest state in the country says there is no unemployment rate there is no openness during a pandemic. There is no um, fiduciary responsibility. There is no protection of our children that you could offer us that would get us to rethink our position. In fact, we are against those things. We don't want our children protected, but exposed. And when we get to this point that we're at now, then elections are really only about one thing. They used to be about, and they were intended to be about, each side or before the Civil War, there were multiple sides. since we had the two-party system after reconstruction, prior to reconstruction, every party had its own vision for what was the right way to adjudicate, live out, protect the laws of nature and nature's God, to the, the pursuit of happiness and what that meant. All right. What has happened in our era now though, is that's not the argument anymore. Elections are now about the acquisition and wielding of power. No more no less power to punish your enemies before they punish you and the power to protect people from the people's enemies before they get power and use it to punish them there it's not about making the trains run on time it's not about jobs in the economy not about any of that none of that matters now it's it is and, and if the right does not understand that then we are in many respects going to be the we're going to be like the redcoats in the revolutionary war you know, that we never really defeated the British, Iran. They just got tired and went home. They got, they got tired of fighting. There was no, like, grand battle. Yorktown's maybe the closest. But there wasn't a moment that everyone agreed, wow, the British. In fact, they came back, like, a decade later in the War of 1812 and tried it all over again. They just got tired. We just kept fighting over and over and over again. And eventually, the Red Coach were like, damn, man, I'm, I'm tired. I don't want to die for New Jersey. I want to go home to my wife. You can have it. And they left. They just got in and left. All right? And... And what happened in that war, and it's depicted very well in the Patriot, is in the end, the side that most has the resolve in the rightness of its own cause always wins. Every conflict, cold or hot, in human history, and, and so the British would come out this very well trained army. They went to the David French School of uh, of, uh, of of of, of cavalry, uh, and they you know we 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 uh, we get eight hours of sleep. We shoot at nine. Uh, we break at 10 for tea, uh, shooting again at 10.30 out here in the field. Uh, then we break for lunch, hour and a half break, shooting again at two. I mean, there were these very gentlemanly rules of engagement. And they figured, you know, these colonials, they're their fellow Englishmen. They will abide by the law uh, the, the, of, of chivalry here and the code, uh, the, the social compact here. We're all Englishmen here. We're all gentlemen here. We're all, we're all white Anglo-Saxon. Pro- we're all WASPs here, you know. And the Colonials are like, screw that noise. I want to be home with my wife tonight. So I'm going to hide out in this tree. I'm going to shoot you in the back, actually, is what I'm going to do. All right. And and then I'm going to run, okay, and into the woods because you outnumbered me like 50 to 1. And if I stand out here in the field, I'm just going to get my head blown off. So not going to do that, okay. So I'm going to, like, stab you in the middle of the night. We basically invented guerrilla warfare in the Revolutionary War. The Colonials basically brought it to Western civilization for the first time. And, and we are now the cultural redcoats. There's these codicils. There are these systems. We must follow said systems. It would be just a terrible thing. And, you know, I, 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 very good friends of mine and I argued during the last election about whether Mike Pence had the power or not to decertify the last election. You want to know what my position was? And this is when I knew I had finally crossed crossed the Rubicon. My position was I don't care. They're obviously stealing an election. I'm getting calls from people, friends of mine who are Trump. Uh, election monitors standing outside of city of, of city halls and courthouses where they're counting votes in places like philadelphia where they have violated the law they have blacked out the windows they boarded them up they have kicked the monitors out they're just counting for days social compact is broken i don't care what the eighth amendment says now all right the sabbath was made for man or on not man for the sabbath if you get the analogy i'm drawing there yeah all right the constitution was made for us we were not made for the constitution And there's a higher law before we get to the constitution, like thou shalt not steal. That existed on this planet for thousands of years before we codified a constitution and they're stealing. So I don't care what the eighth amendment's 14th sentence says. And hell, right now, I don't even know what to ask 14 sentences. I don't think it does actually. What I care about is they're stealing in broad daylight. They are urinating on on our social compact and this republic. We cannot tolerate that. And so somebody do something. I don't care what the previous rules of engagement were, they have rendered them null and void by their own actions. And I think we have to, we're going to have to figure out, because now we do need to have some lines. You know, I'm a Christian. I cannot do, I cannot do what God's law forbids me from doing. So I can't steal, like they steal from me. I can't bear false witness like they do that to me. But everything short of that, you bet your ass I can do that. Okay, so I will not break the laws of nature and nature's God to uphold the laws of nature and nature's God. But all of your traditions and legacies and heritages about uh, those are out the the window to me because the social compact is out the window now, too.
0: Well, and it's very clear that the left has had this approach for a very long time, right? Everything from sanctuary cities to, like we said, blowing off. Uh, you know, anti—you uh, know—laws that don't allow you to to have race-based emissions in California, they simply ignore it. They—they—they they, they know that they they are not beholden to those things. Now, I think there are mechanical reasons that they get to do that that we don't, and that that's something that the right has to understand as well. There, are, there are all these different informal uh, or or there there are these uh, victories at different levels that have to be one for you to have those options. Uh, but the Supreme Court, you know, having uh, these kind of rulings does give you some of those options, and that's. That's certainly the case with affirmative action. You do get a, a new way to to fight that back there for sure. Uh, but I wanted to get to to these other two big rulings that I think uh, are important. The, the next one, speaking of uh, you know, uh, nature and nature's God, is of course uh, the religious freedom ruling here. Now, originally with uh, the famous cake baking uh, case, the Supreme Court kind of handed down a very narrow ruling. It didn't really. Uh, set aside uh, the ability of Christians to not engage in certain types of commerce if it violated, uh, you know, their religious beliefs. Uh, this one with the website and the, the kind of the the, the gay marriage, uh, you know, asking for website design. This one was a little more specific. It still is is only because this is a, a creative thing. It's not a general ability to refuse service or to to really have freedom of association. But at least it is specifically, uh, you know, uh, speaking to the fact that Christians do have the right to decide to not use their creative capacities in ways that would violate their religious conviction.
1: It's. I think it was good that you cited the precedents here. The Hobby Lobby case was the initial win, and that was over Obamacare and the abortion uh, stipulation. There, did you have to fund abortion via Obamacare and Hobby Lobby? And at the time, I actually thought the court was going to rule against us because it had already ruled in the original gay marriage decision, Windsor. And I could just not, I just couldn't see Anthony Kennedy, who views himself as the uh, the great uh, homosexual, um, you know, emancipator of America. I couldn't see him. He would have to know that if he ruled for Hobby Lobby, then when the, when, when the inevitable challenges to religious liberty come up in response to redefining marriage, he's going to have to rule the same way. And I didn't think he would do that. Well, it turns out that he did. But you're right. the uh, the The master the, the masterpiece cake shop case that you referenced there was very narrow. In fact, in the ruling itself, uh, Anthony Kennedy actually wrote his his separate concurrent majority opinion, where he clearly tried to he was clearly trying to limit the precedent. And in there, he he wrote that as long as you could pr- that you, you you could do this if you could prove it was for any reason other than religious animus. Like he couldn't think of any reason you would keep going to poor Jack's cake shop in Denver, because it's clearly not the only cake shop in Denver. Right. He couldn't think of a reason why you would keep going to Jack's cake shop except to specifically target him, to specifically make an, an example out of him. But, but Kennedy said, as long as you can do that in a way where it's not as obvious, then OK, it's fine. So they kept doing it. Remember, Jack's actually been back before the U.S. Supreme Court, had to win there again. OK, so he's been there twice. Now they're going after him again a third time, I believe, on a, trans, a training cake, I, I want to say. All right. So in, in this case, the court did make a much more blanket statement that you can, as a general rule, not be compelled to use your abilities, talents, intellectual property, proprietary um, methods, etc., et that are unique to you uh, to market messages and causes that you morally find inappropriate. And this is, again, something that if the social compact wasn't broken, another way of putting that is if we could actually be the kinds of people libertarians fantasize, we could be, but isn't actual reality when you look at human nature, doesn't really work that way, you know, um, then then this would be obvious because you would just flip the script or you would say, okay, well, would we tell a, a black caterer that they had to go cater the white nationalist meeting? We wouldn't tell him that; they'd be stupid. Would, would we? Would we tell the owner that he had to go and deliver subs at the neo-Nazi rally? No one would. No one would not. No one. No one in their right mind would say, "Yeah, that, that, that's that's what it means." That that's the David French is right. That's the price of liberty. No one would say this. So it's only being applied in one. no one's even saying this about Muslims. I mean, our, our former colleague here at the Blaze, Stephen Crowder, did a bit about eight years ago after Windsor, where he went to Detroit to Dearborn. Uh, which is the most Islamic-centric, um, uh, Muslim-centric sector of America demographically. And he kept walking into Muslim bakeries trying to get them to bake him a gay cake and they wouldn't do it, okay? And so it's really just, can we find Christians and make them bow the knee to, the, to what you like to call the total state? Because if the social compact wasn't broken, we would already recognize, you know, it ain't no fun when the rabbits got the gun. Do we want to make the gay cake baker? Do we want to make him uh, do a, you know, a, a Romans one cake, a Ten Commandments cake? We, we would automatically assume that it, 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 it has to go both ways. Otherwise, it's a fallacy. We don't do that anymore. Why? Because the fallacy is the point. We want to, they want to break the social compact. They want you to, be, to bend the knee. They want to punish you for dissenting. All right. And, and it was always going to go from why do you care what two people that love each other do in the privacy of their own bedroom to you will be made to care. It was always going to go there. And I think something I've seen you say a lot, which is everything that the old religious right leaders of the eighties got parodied and panned for saying has actually happened and worse. And that's exactly right.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's, that's the case. Like you said, this, the, the, the illusion, you know, the, 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 uh, Kind of the shield that's held out in front is, oh, this is going to be even handed. This is going to apply to everybody. Right. But we, we understand we see that continuously that really this is a coalition of people who are looking to dismantle America as we knew it. Right. And yes. uh, wh- and it's the you know, whether it's Christianity, whether it's a, a European heritage being denied the ability to to go to something like Harvard, these they're the, the victims are continually uh, targeted specifically for the fact that they're connected to the American tradition, the American social compact, what has made America kind of what it is. And so they're not going after Muslims for this, even though they know they have exactly the same uh, mm-hmm. or, or even a more uh, maybe even a more staunch. Uh, objection to this? They don't care because they're part of the coalition that's voting to dismantle these things, or at least they think they're they are. I, I, numerically, I believe they are at this point, and, and Christians are not. And so it's about punishing your enemies and rewarding your friends. And so you 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 turn a blind eye to those that might vote for you in other situations, and you uh, you know turn the eye of Sauron directly on uh, those who are kind of against your coalition. -hmm. Uh, But it, like you said, I think it is good. uh, uh, Obviously, that this ruling does exist. It's another uh, another case in which uh, you. I'm sure you'll continue to see this harassment in many ways. Like you said, with the um, with the cake. uh, The the uh, is it master? I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the masterpiece cake shop. Masterpiece, yes. Uh, We see that the kind of the process is the punishment, right? Even when they know they're not going to get the ruling that they want, continually forcing. This poor guy into this situation allows them to punish him. They don't care about the actual ruling at the end of the day. They care about the punishment of forcing him through this. But now there is that legal precedent that, again, allows the reciprocal ability of conservatives, if they have kind of the, you know, if they can grow the spine to push back on these lawfare cases and say, okay, well, we can bring similar cases now Mm -hmm. against different organizations now that we have those precedents. But there's one more that I want to talk about. Uh, with you before we get to I want to talk to you about July 4th here too in just a second because I think you have an interesting perspective on kind of where the country's at and I wanted to pick your brain about it but the last case uh, that that was kind of important over this week uh, was or last week was the the uh, rejection of Biden's attempt to pay off uh, student loan debt to forgive student loan debt of course we know there is no forgiving student loan debt it doesn't magically disappear it just means someone else pays for it now I I I'm of I'm, I, I know that this is a good win for conservatives uh and, and for the right in general because basically this was one big uh attempt at a big client class payoff, right? Yeah. They they know that colleges are progressive seminaries. They know that they're designed to spread their worldview while getting uh you know students deeply into debt and lots of usury to make sure that they can't start families, they can't afford homes. Uh, they spend all of this money, you know, acquiring a credential to get locked into a corporation that's going to hate them and their values. Uh so so in many ways this is a big win for the right but at the same time i do want to say that the the college system in and of itself is a horrible thing right now the kind of debt we're putting kids into to again force them to go through this horrendous brainwashing and then get you know terrible jobs that they're going to get replaced out of in a few years once the next batch of hb1 visas comes through like that is a predatory system and so many ways i do feel for a lot of people who were felt like they were forced to go through a predatory system with a bunch of values they hate to incur debt that they didn't want to get so like I, I do think they are in many ways victims of a, of a system designed to destroy them but obviously what the left was trying to do is not rescue these people they from that system they wanted to continue that system they just wanted to give a bunch of bennies to people who they were sure were going to be voting for them for the rest of their lives
1: you are correct on both accounts and i'm glad you used the term usury i want to come back to that in a second but first and foremost, this was a wealth redistribution scheme. Right. I mean, the the left has lost married people, and, and especially married whites, in almost every presidential election ever. Um, uh, you know, in the last 50 years, including the ones they won, uh, they lost them. All right. And so, um, on the other hand, they almost always win among college-aged voters, when at least those who managed to show up. And so this is, was a clear attempt at a, at a demographic redistribution scheme uh, who are pr- primarily the people that are going to be adamant about actually paying back their student loans. A lot of them will probably be married, responsible, probably not voting for me. And the people that either don't want to pay them back or can't are the people that are voting for me. So this is just a, this is a basic concept. You now, the only time I've seen Republicans ac- accurately do this was in Trump's uh, return the favor was Trump's tax cuts. Remember how they were complaining about the uh, the people that lived in the blue states, the high. Now you know Texas can have some high property taxes too, but a lot of the high property tax states are blue states, mm. and so they were really pissed off that they weren't going to get to write off their the state their, the state income tax deduction anymore uh, with the Trump tax cuts. But you know what the Trump administration's position basically was: the Republicans. I'm glad they. This is like the only time I've ever seen them do something like this. Well, you guys don't vote for us anyway, so screw you. <laughs> the states that do vote for us, they, they they don't need that state income tax deduction as much as you do, and so we're going to give them the big federal tax deduction that they deserve. So screw you.
0: Just direct patronage, yeah. Just yep. direct patronage. Yes. That, that's yes. a great thing to actually see. Yeah.
1: Yes, this is what Democrats were trying to do via the student loan issue. Right. But but you used a very important term there with usury. And that is very, very much what is going on. And and I do think we still need to deal with. It, it, the, you, I think, you even use the phrase predatory lending practices. Um, these are doctor feelgoods. You know, they're on. These are drug dealers on every street corner, known as every public school in America. You have to do this. I mean, you're not as good of a person. You might miss out. I mean, what do you mean you want to just go and get a trade or be a welder? I mean, what, you you don't want to. I mean. And I think one way that we could potentially deal with this is, let's do debt. Re- let's do student loan debt relief, but the remuneration reverts back to the universities. It co- it, it's a, it's it's an it's an offset. Whatever their funding was from the state or the feds, it is offset against that until all that debt is paid off. So somebody does pay it. Yeah, um, the 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 pimp does. The drug dealer does. He pays the
0: bill. That's exactly right. Seize the endowments, uh, you know, uh, mortgage the buildings until you have enough to pay. Okay, well, then we'll we'll be happy to pay these off. Hopefully by that point, you've salted the earth and the buildings are raised to the ground. But (laughs) either way, you know, we we have to like conservatives have to get okay with this idea that we have to radically change the way credentialing is done in the United States. I know you went to, you know, with we we, uh, we went to to college and we have college football teams and alma maters and have fond memories of these things but this system is destroying young people it's destroying mm-hmm. the ability of people to have homes to have families uh to have the ability to start out with a and and have a you know the, do the kind of things that will make them more conservative and by the way happier and healthier and and you know putting people in this level of debt is is just strictly immoral and we. I, I- and Consider we have, it better. So, yeah, yeah. We, we just have to find a way, you know, alternative examinations, uh, you know, uh, force businesses to actually bear the cost of recruiting and training, uh, you know, their employees again, rather than just putting it on the state and taxpayers like th- th- this has to be a shift of mentality for conservatives. And so uh, th- this is a this is a victory, obviously, like you, you said, this would have been a direct redistribution, a payoff, a big patronage scheme for for biden and so his defeat here also you know with the fact that they're just uh they were just exploiting uh kind of the the administrative state and their ability to manipulate some you know program and and rewrite the law like he's uh like he was afforded kind of some kind of kingship uh but you know beyond that like it is a win, but I don't think that lets the right off the hook of understanding, like, this is not a problem that's going away. And if you don't rethink higher education and the way we credential people in the United States, you will, comp- you will continue to let your opponents train your children and uh, put them into debt and destroy them and destroy their ability to have a family while just so they can have some you know college degree on their wall.
1: Brother, that's a homily. <laughs> I can't do any better. I agree with every single consonant vowel vowel and syllable that you just uttered completely
0: well the the last thing i wanted to get to with you is you know the 4th of july here right because we we have that coming up tomorrow uh many people will be off they'll be celebrating they'll be the cookouts and the fireworks but um it's a it's a rough time for america right we we look at um you know what happened last month we look at the white house draped in the pride flag we look at our service members Saluting the pride flag, right? We, we've replaced the flag of the nation with a flag of empire, right? One, one of global conquest with a, with a whole mm-hmm. different set of values and a whole different uh, constituency behind it. And it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of people. I grew up, uh, you know, I was the son of a military officer. I grew up on military bases. A lot of my friends are service members. Um, I have a deep respect for the people who have fought for this country and sacrificed for this country and still feel compelled to do so. But I can understand the difficulty of looking at a nation that has been twisted like ours has. And and I'm feeling conflicted on these kind of patriotic holidays. I, I believe I've heard you say this and some of my listeners might be surprised because they're, they're not used to hearing it from somebody who who kind of has the, the level of notoriety you have in a, in a more mainstream conservative setting but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you said we, you know, we don't need to save this nation. We need to defeat it. Yeah. Um, And, and I was just wonder, you know, how do you feel having said something like that? How do you feel uh, when you're looking at something like July 4th?
1: Well, like you, um, my wife's an army brat. She was born on the, uh, on the, uh, you know, in, in Nuremberg, West Germany at the time, while her dad was stationed there. Uh, My father-in-law, we just buried him with a full military funeral last August, Uh, career 101st Airborne. I jumped out of planes and helicopters for a living for over 20 years. And um, my new son-in-law, who bears my same first name, Stephen, he's in the National Guard right now. Uh, So there's a lot of history and and lineage and legacy with the armed forces and in our family. And I am saying things right now, I'm a child of the 80s man. I I grew up in the We're America, bitch 80s. Okay, and so this is not my native tongue. Um, It's, I had to be compelled here. This is not my generational bias whatsoever. In fact, I'm going against it. But um, all my career, I have always done an Independence Day show. A special July 4th show looking back on our history, um, I have a long-standing recording of uh, of a great stage actor who passed away about ten years ago who traveled the country doing John Adams from his own writings. and I would play that every year on my show. We'd, we'd look at the the deciding vote for the Declaration of Independence. Caesar Rodney was the deciding vote for the state of Delaware so because it was going to be unanimous or nothing. and Delaware was the last holdout. And there were three people to a, to a, a, a delegation and, and Rodney was home sick and he rode horseback through the night from Delaware to Philadelphia through violent thunderstorms, violent illness in order to get there to cast the deciding vote for the Delaware delegation. So it would get to 13 to nothing. Yes, they voted to ratify the Declaration of Independence. And um, this is the first year ever I haven't done it. Even even in, even in past years, I did it even when I wasn't feeling it, Oran, because I'm, there's a great line in the Man of Steel movie when jor and Zod both are angry at what's become of the government of Krypton. And Zod breaks in with like some crazed, you know, armed militant, military takeover. And he thinks his old friend jor is going to join him. And jor looks at him and says, I will honor the man you once were by not joining you in this. And so I always felt like I'm going to I'm at least going to still honor the country we once were or were created to be by continuing to do this special episode every year. We got to the end of last week and I said to my um, my co-host Todd and Aaron I'm like guys we never plotted out our 4th of July or 4th of July show and now we're off on the 3rd and the 4th do we come back and do it on the 5th well then we'd actually preempt one of the most popular segments we do on the show every week and we looked at, just looked at each other and thought Number 1, the fact that we weren't planning this out like weeks in advance kind of indicates just subconsciously where we are. And then secondly, we all looked at each other and we're like, we just don't have the heart or the energy to to go and do this again. It would it just doesn't, you know, it I don't I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's wrong, but it's honest about where I am. And I mean, we we are we're one more we're one more debauched stripe on the rainbow flag or on from me kneeling at the national anthem now What, what 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 am i standing up for trainee madness grooming sodomy in the streets I, I don't care about any of that in fact i'm opposed to it you know so what, what i mean I, what are we playing two three national anthems at the super bowl now i mean i just Yeah, I was was going to
0: say which national anthem, which flag at this point, right? Yes,
1: yeah. Yeah. And so I'm just, you know, I'm really raw about this right now. And I don't like doing things if it feels like I'm just kind of forcing it. You know, I don't like contrivance, you know, and it it just felt like the fact that it wasn't every year by the middle of June, I'd already have my 4th of July show planned, what date we're going to do it and everything else. This year, I didn't even think about it until the end of last week. And then it was just like, I'm not, I don't have the energy to force it. I don't think it would be sincere. I don't think it'd be authentic. I'd be just doing it to check a box, go through the motions. And, you know, that's just kind of not what I'm about. So right or wrong, this is the first time in my career that we haven't done it.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that. I know a lot of people feel that. And it's, it's again, it's very difficult. It's, uh, you know, I grew up as a talk radio conservative. You know, I grew up with, you know, as the son of a of a, you know, a military officer it's very difficult to to look at things this way. I guess this, this would be my thought, right, it, personally, is it's important to care about our heritage, right? It's important to care about um, something that is ours as a people and a nation. And that means, I think, separating the nation from the empire. Um, and that means that we have to celebrate something very specific, which is who we are and who we were and hopefully who God will make us, right? But but separating ourselves from, from the regime now, separating us from the identity of those who are trying to wear this country like a skin suit uh, and instead embracing our family, our faith, um, perhaps a, a focus on the local and the state, right? Of, of, of the brave men and women, the, the people who are still carrying on life in places, uh, uh, you know, where they are attempting to protect, uh, mm-hmm. kind of what they hold dear, and so I, I'm not ready to give up on July 4th yet. But I do think you are absolutely right to say that it comes with very mixed feelings, and and I think many of us on the right, many of us who are, uh, you know, who may be conservative, have to have to rethink how how we approach this because it is it is increasingly something where those in power are telling us we're no longer welcome. We're no longer, this is no longer our country. Now, now we're the, we're aliens here, but that's not the case at the end of the day. This, this is our nation. This is our land. You know, this, this is, these, these are our families. And I think it is, it is still critical to find a way to celebrate them. Even if that means finding new ways to kind of honor that ones that, that aren't so directly connected to, to kind of, those that are now taking over this country and, and forcing it down a, a very terrible path. Um, well, said. But sorry. yeah, but sorry guys. I know that wasn't <laughs> the, most, the most uplifting one at the end there, but I just thought it was really important. Like I said, I had heard, I had heard you say that before and I thought that was very interesting. And so I, I did want to get your, your thoughts on this because uh, it's a very, very difficult holiday. I think now for some, but, uh, but one that I think still holds uh, an important piece of who we are, Uh, even if America is something different at the end of this, uh, we'll still be connected to that heritage. And I think that that's really important. Uh, Well, Steve, uh, of course, everybody should be checking out the Steve Day show. Uh, Steve's got a great book, uh, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, talking about everything that happened with a pandemic. Um, You should, of course, be checking those things out. But Steve, before we go check out the questions of the people, is there anything else people should be looking at?
1: Our movie Nefarious, I'm wearing the shirt today. I actually didn't intend to do that. I just grabbed the first t shirt I had in my (laughs) drawer, and it was this one, ironically. Uh but uh it's in streaming right now. It is doing very, very well. And um it it if it it really gets into it here's why I think your audience will love our movie. You're gonna watch a a secular leftist who thinks he is the people we've been waiting for, that he has all of the answers. He's he's and knows all there is to know, and he is going to run into real evil, real demonic evil, his own sort of uh, dark Yoda, if you will, who's going to show him the tr- true origins of all the worst ideas he's ever had, and it's going, by the end of this movie, it will wreck him, absolutely wreck him, and cause him to reevaluate him his, his own spirituality, his place in the world, what is true and what is not. And I think an audience like yours would absolutely love it. And it's available right now on Amazon Prime, uh, Google, YouTube, iTunes, Apple, uh, Vudu, Salem Now, Roku. It's called Nefarious. I think you'll love it.
0: Yeah, I was lucky enough to uh, see that when you kind of screened it for uh, some of the the people at the Blaze. And uh, really well done. Uh, Very powerfully acted. Uh, that's what really stood out to me just 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 a great movie so i encourage people to check that out i think it's uh well worth your time guys i think he's right you'll absolutely enjoy it so uh, a, so a, yeah the, the the kind of horror movie that's got you thinking at the at the end so that's always good news all right so uh ec90 here thank you very much for your chat uh sir uh Karl marx would have despised progressives uh well so yeah i think in many ways that's probably true right like uh, they would, would have found it gross how easily they've cozied up to um, uh, to to capital, right, to, mm-hmm. to capital uh, would have uh, in many ways have found, uh, you know, some of the degeneracy uh, that has now become a key part of the progressive movement, a problem, though, to be fair, I do think sometimes people overstate this you know, Ingalls was, you know, talking about the need of, to dismantle the family, you know? And so uh, I, w- I wouldn't let the Marxists off too easy here with uh, w- with being disgusted with the progressives. But in many ways, I think you're right that that's true.
1: I think the problem that Marx has is when you reject um, the nature of God and the nature of man, you're just, even if you're right about some things later on, it'll be from the wrong premise and the wrong. Hmm. and th- And so- his ideology that he espoused is impossible because of the spiritual condition of man. All right. If, if, if we were, if, if and ironically someone who viewed history through the lens of a struggle between the powerful and the powerless, thinking that at some point when the powerless became powerful, that they would create some kind of utopia and not become the very essence of it. Ain't no fun. When the rabbits got the gun, that again is a misreading of human nature. And, the reality is, if, if ultimately, if you do view history as a struggle between the powerful and the powerless, then what today's progressives have done even is, is a more honest fulfillment of what Marx prophesied than even Marx prophesied himself. They, they aligned with power to get the power they needed to no longer be powerless. That is the human condition. And that, that, that's really the history of our species, short of the 247 years history of this country, and a generation or two of Old Testament Israel before its spiritual rebellion—that is largely the history of our species, governing uh, one another and ourselves on this earth.
0: Yeah, whatever whatever valid criticisms he may have had, like you said, that rejection of human nature just, of course, absolutely dooms the prod the project of and and basically just turned it into something that allowed people to try to to uh, reconstruct natural hierarchies invert natural hierarchies in a way that just mm-hmm. destroys everything from you know families to you know religion to society itself and we're certainly feeling the uh, the reverberate, reverberation of that uh,
1: he must have forgot all the guillotines at the uh, at the french revolution after the french revolution or, he forgot or
0: have been really excited about them either that's t- <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. very well said yeah. there you go I feel you.
0: Yeah. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and start wrapping this up. I want to thank everybody who came by. And of course, I want to thank Steve, an excellent guest. Of course, like I said, make sure you check out his show, his book, uh, the movie, all really great. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure talking with you.
1: You bet, man. You're a very smart dude. You're one of the few people in this business. I actually quote affirmatively. So thank you. I thought it was great when we brought you on board and uh, glad you're a part of the team. So thanks for having me.
0: Thank you, man. Thank you, man. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. And as always, I will talk to you next time.